Tonight we are going to look at the topic, the meaning of life as taught through the Bible. And there will be some themes that you will recognise for those that listen this morning to the exhortation, and I think that's entirely appropriate because what we find is a common theme and thread through the Bible as to what is the meaning of life. And I think we as humans, we have an inherent desire to find out what is the meaning of life. It's something that we can dwell on often. And if we were to do a uh, Google search for the phrase, the meaning of life, you can see there that we have 152 million results. And here's a fun fact for the kids. If you were to spend one minute looking at every single one of those results, it would take you 289 years to look through them all, which really goes to show that the search for the meaning of life is often seen as a a lifelong commitment. Tonight, we're going to cover this topic in about 50 minutes. And perhaps with the recent pandemic that uh, we're all experiencing, perhaps that's given people an even greater focus and an even greater desire to, to, uh, what is is it all about? What does life really mean? For those that have been home in isolation, there's time to ponder, what, what is life all about? Well, if you were to take a a natural view, I guess there are several different ideas of what the meaning of life is about. Some people would say, well, you know, life is short, so really life is, is just about, it's a, it's a party. I'll do nothing else, but I'll just party. Uh, it's, it's probably something that's a little bit more common in the younger people, uh, but there, there, there are some people who think that that's what life is all about. The meaning of life is just to go out there and in, enjoy yourself and, and enjoy, enjoy it while you can. Well, we have an example of someone who did that in the Bible, the prodigal son. We know from Luke 11 and verse 13, there's that parable of the prodigal son who went to his father and he said, give me my inheritance because I just want to go out and I just want to party. And we're told that he wasted his substance with riotous living. And of course, the end result is that he went back to his father and he begged that he could return to the family, even as a slave, as a servant. And so there's an example of someone who tried it and saw the consequences. Other people might say, well, you know, life is just about building as much wealth as you can. I don't care if I've got to uh, climb the corporate ladder and the, the greasy corporate pole. I don't care if I've got to step over people on the way. I don't care whether I'm doing it morally. Whatever, life is just about earning as much money as I possibly can. And that becomes the sole focus in life. The meaning of life is to to grow great wealth. We know the words from the apostle in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So they tried. They tried 
to gain wealth. It was the sole focus. They loved money. And the apostles said that that is only going to lead to sorrow. And we know that. You can ask some people that have great wealth and say, well, are you any happier than you were before you had the great wealth? And there will be those that will say, no, life is no different for me. I'm no happier. Some people think that life is just about relaxation. So what I'll do is I'll go and plant two poles in the the middle of the water, put a hammock in between, and I'll just sit there, lay there, and I'll relax. Because why toil? Why spend a lot of time building wealth and uh, going out to parties? That's all just too much trouble. I just want to relax. The meaning of life is just to relax. Well, when Solomon was walking along one day, it's recorded for us in Proverbs 24 and verse 30, that Solomon goes out and he he sees a a field of the the slothful, he calls it, and, and a vineyard of a man that is void of understanding. And he says, lo, it's all grown over with thorns and nettles had covered the face thereof and and that stone wall had broken down because that's the result of idleness, isn't it? Things start to break down and we might feel that it's a great thing to do nothing but relax and be slothful, but as the wise man Solomon said, it leads to overgrowing and Uh, and and the stone walls, things aren't maintained and things start to break down. Some people believe that the meaning of life is to focus solely on charity. And that is a noble cause, charity. To go and help the needy, to make sure that people have enough food, to make sure that people are not in suffering, to make sure that the environment is protected, All these different causes, they're a noble cause. But some people say, well, the meaning of life is to focus solely on that. And we're reminded of Matthew 19 and verse 21. Jesus said to the the rich man, he said, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, for thou shalt have treasure in heaven. So yes, the Lord Jesus Christ said we should do this. But notice what he also adds at the very end, and follow me. And that was the difference. It wasn't about just going and giving everything you have and and doing nothing but charity. There was the need as well to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, the meaning of life is to build a legacy. I'm not talking about building wealth, but building a legacy so that Your name is remembered from generation to generation. This could be through great wealth and building buildings. It could be someone who desires to be a famous actor so their name is remembered or a famous sports person whose name is remembered. Someone whose focus is on building a legacy. Perhaps that is the meaning of life, some would say. Again, we have the example of the parable from the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 12 and verse 18 of this person, this uh, this wealthy person who was building wealth and they wanted to take down their barns and build even greater barns. And there they would bestow all their fruits and their goods, build a, a legacy, greater barns, bigger buildings so that they could be remembered. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ 
said of that, that that is very temporary and you risk the, the moth coming and eating, treasures being wasted away or rusting. He said, store up your treasures in heaven. And so there was the focus there on the heavenly rather than building a legacy here on earth. But at the end of the day, people say, well, the meaning of life is, life is short and then you end up in the grave. So, you know what, it doesn't really matter what I do, but at least I'll finally get to have some rest and peace and quiet there in the grave. You know, the Israelites in Isaiah 22, the Israelites thought that the Assyrian army who would come down against them and then they had retreated, the the Israelites thought, well, this is only temporary. At some point, these Assyrians are going to come back and they're going to destroy and decimate us. So what will we do? Well, in joy and gladness, we're going to slay the oxen, kill the sheep, eat their flesh, drink wine. Let's just eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. And you can understand why many people on the earth focus on these things. From their perspective, there's nothing beyond this mortal life. It's only when you start to look at the more spiritual and and beyond this mortal life, the point between birth and death and then looking beyond that. In, In fact, all of the major religions have a focus on the meaning of life in some way. And you can see how many of the major religions seek to elevate thinking beyond just the basics. But some of them, when you actually look into them, well, they seem to still be focused very much on the present rather than the future. Just like some of those things that we've already seen tonight. Perhaps to be fair to some of these religions, they try to remove the focus just on self and look towards others, but do they really offer a meaning of life beyond just the temporary things of today? Take, for example, Buddhism. And this is a gross simplification and a summary in just a few words, but Buddhism says the true meaning of life is helping others achieve freedom from suffering. The true meaning of joy is compassion. The goal in life is to assist others to realise their full potential. The meaning of life is to grow into a kind and caring soul who is selfless and understanding. Absolutely a a noble thing to do and something we should all strive to do. And Hinduism, likewise, a gross simplification, has those four goals. Dharma, to fulfill one's purpose. Arthur, for prosperity. Karma, for enjoyment. And moksha, for enlightenment. And each of the other major religions have their own version of the meaning of life, like Christianity and Catholicism, Judaism, Islam. Well, the Bible gives us the meaning of life. And it has a major focus on the future. And it gives us hope and it gives us purpose to life. And to understand what the Bible teaches concerning the meaning of life, 
I think the best place to start is from the very beginning. So it'll be revision for many of us, but it sets the context for God's plan and purpose, which we need to understand in order to have a greater understanding of the meaning of life. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have the record of creation. And when we get to verses 27 and 28, we have the record of the creation of man and woman on the sixth day. Male and female created them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it. And so mankind was created, and they were given a purpose at that point, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And we're told in Genesis 1 and verse 31 that God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And so as God looks upon his creation and he sees man that he has made, he sees it and he says... That is very good. In the context of man, very good has a specific application. And this is something that I Bible marked in my Bible when I was going through for baptism many years ago. Man was created as very good. What does that mean? Well, being very good meant that there was a number of possibilities. Mortality was a possibility, but they weren't subject to it. And immortality was a possibility, but they were not subject to it. And so at that point in time, they're in that state of being very good. We know that God put a test on Adam and Eve. Would they obey a commandment? In Genesis 2, verses 16 to 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the knowledge of of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And so Adam and Eve are, are given this test. There's a tree there, and they're forbidden to eat of the fruit. And it's recorded for us in Genesis 3 and verse 6 that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. So she took of the fruit thereof and she did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. And so Adam and Eve disobey this commandment that was given to them by God. We know that they were told that the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that term, surely die, means dying thou shalt die. So that mortality being a possibility, well, if they disobeyed God, then that would become a reality. And we know that from the punishment that they were given in Genesis chapter 3, that they did become a dying mortal creature. And God made a promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15 during that uh, section where uh, where, where they are given the outcome of their disobedience. 
And in Genesis 3, in verse 15, God promises that he would put enmity between the serpent and the, and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and that it will bruise thy head, the seed of the woman will bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so there's a promise here already in Genesis 3 and verse 15 that in the future someone would come who would destroy the sin represented here by the serpent. And as we'll see and as we know, the Lord Jesus Christ came to fulfill that promise. God goes on in Genesis 3 and verse 19 to 20. He says to Adam and Eve, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. So they became mortal, dying creatures. But wait! Adam calls his wife's name Eve, the mother of living. Isn't that interesting that they've just been told that they have become mortal dying creatures and they are going to die. And Adam turns around and he calls his wife's name Eve, the mother of all living. So in the punishment that they would receive, Adam sees that God had provided them a way in the future to be saved from mortality. And here's a, an animation to drive the point home. God created Adam and Eve, and at the time before they disobeyed, they were described as being very good. Mortality was a possibility, immortality was a possibility. When they broke the commandment, they became mortal, dying creatures. And if you fast forward to today, that's exactly what we find on the earth today, just like it was for Adam and Eve. Every single human being is a mortal, dying creature. And we all die and we all return to the dust. And apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, we've all disobeyed God just like Adam and Eve did. But Yahweh has given us a path of redemption through the promise that he made in the Garden of Eden. The promise that one day in the future, our mortality would be changed to immortality. Adam recognised the hope. We saw that in the, the way that he named his wife Eve, the mother of all living. There's a path that we can follow that will end up with us being changed to immortality. And it's not something that every single person on this planet is going to attain. God is calling out specific people, specific individuals who can be a part of that hope. And surely there is no greater calling for us than to be amongst those who look forward to the hope of salvation. And we're told in John Chapter 3 and verse 16, that the path of salvation is through our Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
The Lord Jesus Christ was the seed promised who would bruise the head of the serpent. Eternal life is promised through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that he is the one who bruised the head of the serpent in Hebrews 2 in verse 14. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of obedience and he never sinned. And this enabled him to overcome and to destroy that which has the power over death, the power of sin and to offer us a way of salvation. But it does beg the question, why did God offer mankind a hope for immortality? They failed the test in the garden. If we all disobey God, why is he giving us a way to be saved from death and to receive everlasting life? And the answer is very well in the meaning of life. And if we look at Isaiah 45 and verse 18, we're told, For thus saith the Lord that created the heaven... God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. So the earth wasn't created in vain, it was created to be inhabited. And I think there's a danger that if we took this verse in isolation, we might say, well... God's achieved that already. The earth is inhabited. There's six billion or more people on the earth besides animals and plant life. Surely his work is now completed. Surely the meaning of life now is just to inhabit the earth and party on and build wealth and relax and focus on charity, build a legacy and finish it off peacefully lying in our grave. Well, when we look around the earth today, we have to ask the question, is this really what God intended when he created the earth to be inhabited? I mean, does he want an earth that is filled with death? Does he want an earth that is filled with war? Does he want an earth which is filled with famine where people are starving every day? Does he want an earth that is totally full of pollution? Earthquakes abounding that people are suffering from? Tsunamis that are occurring that are killing people and destroying their homes? Does God want an earth that is filled with domestic violence? We hear that in this time of isolation, things like domestic violence are, are becoming even more noticed because people are stuck at home with their abusive partners. Is this what God intended for the earth? Did he really mean just inhabit the earth and then die? Well, the answer is obviously not. 
which is why he established that plan and purpose that would lead to salvation. And when we consider two additional verses, we can see for an absolute certainty that God wants more than just an earth which is filled with billions of mortal dying creatures. Numbers 14 and verse 21, As truly as I live, says God, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Combine that with Habakkuk 2 and verse 14, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And so what God intended when he said, he established this earth to be inhabited, is he intended it to be filled with his glory. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have an earth filled with God's glory? Well, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, K-O-B-O-D. It basically means weight. In science, it would be the mass of an object of matter. It's the substance of a person or a thing. And when we look up at the sky at night and we see the awesome things, the stars, when we see God's creation, well, Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show his handiwork. We're told that God is love in 1 John 4 and verse 16. And when Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 34, what did he see? Well, Moses wanted to see God's glory. And God's glory is both physical because Moses did see a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's physical presence. God's glory is eternal. Moses couldn't look upon that full glory. But his glory was also in his character. And that's why God showed Moses his character. So when Moses said, show me your glory in Exodus 34, God said, the Lord, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. That's what God says is his glory. That physical, but also his character as well. And the Lord Jesus Christ prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is this telling us? That God's purpose was to create the earth to be inhabited by people that reflect his glory, both physically and morally. And we use that term morally to describe God's character. They would be both a physical and a moral manifestation of God. Well, you don't get that outcome if man is mortal and disobedient. You also don't get that outcome if uh, mankind is immortal but still disobedient. And this is a really important point and it's one of the key points from the Bible in understanding the meaning of life. Imagine for a moment that the plan was to change us from mortality to immortality and and that was it. If that was the only thing that would change, then we would live forever 
but we would still have a bias towards disobedience and sin, just like Adam and Eve displayed in the Garden of Eden when they ate of the forbidden fruit. The plan of God requires that the inhabitants manifest the glory of God, both physically and morally. And that's the meaning of life. Our very nature will be changed, not just to live forever, but to perfectly obey God. And we know that the time when that will occur is when God's kingdom is established on this earth. When Daniel interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, he says in verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break into pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So this kingdom of God will be established in the future. And Daniel 7 and verse 27 says, The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And so this kingdom that God is establishing will be given to the saints, those that have been saved, those that have been given immortality. And it's described to us like this in 1 Corinthians 15. Those that are changed from mortality to immortality, taking on the physical and the moral glory of our God. It's said there in chapter 15, verses 42 to 44, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Notice that it doesn't just say here that when we're, we are resurrected, we live forever. It's more than that. The corruption is gone. The dishonor is gone. The weakness is gone. The natural is gone. Replaced with incorruption and glory and power and a spiritual body. So taking on the physical characteristics and the physical nature of God. And this is someone who perfectly reflects the glory of God, both physically and morally. And we're told in verse 51 of that same chapter that those who will still be alive when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, who would not have seen death, it says there that even those will be changed in the same fashion. And that could very well be you and I as the signs that we see in the earth point to the near return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there will be those that are 
taken out of the grave, resurrected and received these things. And there will be those that will be alive at the time who will be changed exactly the same way. And essentially the outcome is that they will manifest the glory of God, both physically and morally. Just like what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. He was perfectly obedient during his life. He was raised from the dead. His nature was changed to immortality. And he became the perfect manifestation of the glory of God. Which is why in 1st of John 3 verses 1 to 2 we read behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not beloved now are we the sons of God and it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that, those verses there are saying, we can't fully comprehend what those changes will be when we are changed from mortal to immortal, when we are the perfect manifestation of God, both physically and morally. We we can't fully comprehend it. But what we do know is that those that are sons of God today will be like him in the future. And those are the sentiments of our hymn 388. And if we were here together tonight, instead of at home still in isolation, we would have sung together hymn number 388 because it beautifully captures the sentiments of that verse, those verses. But we can't be here tonight, but what we can do is we can still hear the words of the, the, the hymn. So uh, what Steve is uh, going to do now is just play that hymn so we can listen to it, because I think that it describes in words better than I can the sentiments of First of John 3, verses 1 to 2.
And so there's that promise there, isn't there, of being pure in heart and sinless, that moral glory of God, and our bodies being changed, that physical change from mortality to immortality. When the earth is filled with these people, then the original plan and purpose of God will be fulfilled. The meaning of life will be accomplished. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it didn't change his plans. God's plan from the very beginning had already been set into motion to fill this earth with his glory. And we saw in Genesis 3 and verse 15 those two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman are those who worship God and try to emulate his characteristics and who see the meaning of life as being in that group that God will save. The spirit of the serpent represents those who reject God, who remain in the grave and see the meaning of life as only being a temporary enjoyment until they die. And the Bible is full of examples of both the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And when you look in Hebrews chapter 11, you have a list of all those people that represent the seed of the woman. Hebrews 11 records many of the faithful who worshipped God. And we're told in Hebrews 11 verses 39 to 14, and these all, all these faithful, have obtained a good report through faith. Received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Each of these men and women in Hebrews 11 had a choice. They could choose to serve God or they could choose to serve flesh. And we have the exact same choice as well. We can choose to serve God like these faithful men and women or we can choose to focus on the temporary. And if we choose to serve God and to be amongst those faithful, then Hebrews 11 is giving us that promise that we with them will be made perfect. That's, the, that's that promise of immortality again. And to be amongst those that are to be perfected, all we need to remember are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 16, verses 15 to 16. And since these are some of the last words that our Lord Jesus Christ spoke before he ascended into heaven, we need to pay them special attention. He tells us that if we want to be amongst those immortalities on earth perfectly reflecting God's glory, then there's two things that we need to do here. Believe and be baptised. And of course, live a life that reflects our belief. And that's a completely different focus to those that don't have a hope beyond this present life. Living a life that is pleasing to God rather than pleasing to self. Trying to be like Christ today so we can be fully like him in the future. Developing those characteristics of God rather than the weak characteristics of mankind. 
And the reason that we read from Ecclesiastes tonight is because much of that book concerns the question about the meaning of life. King Solomon was one of the wealthiest kings in Israel and certainly he was one of the wisest. And King Solomon presents us with a startling contrast between life with God and life without God. And it offers us some amazing insights into both sides of the coin. And if you took a superficial reading of Ecclesiastes, you could be left with the feeling that there's no meaning of life, especially from verse, chapters 1 and 2. But when we take a closer look, we find that the purpose of the book is to show us a dramatic contrast between life with God and life without. Is there meaning in life without God? And it speaks many times of the vanity of life. We have that in verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanities of vanities. Vanities of vanities. All is vanity. Modern translations use the term meaningless or pointless. And that's the premise to the book, that life without God is meaningless and empty. And chapter 1 illustrates this for us. In verse 3, What profit hath a man of all his labour which he taketh under the sun? And the idea of under the sun, when we see that, we know that Solomon is talking about life without God. What's profits a man of all his labour without God? In verse 4, One generation passes away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. People come and go, they're born and they die, someone else is born and someone else dies, and it's an endless cycle of birth and death. Verse 5, the sun also ariseth, the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose, and so the sun goes up and down, up and down, up and down, day after day, and it never ends. Verse 6, the wind blows this way and that. It whirls about continuously and endlessly, from the south to the north. Verse 7, the water runs from the rivers into the sea, and the sea is full. There's this never-ending cycle of water as it comes down and then it evaporates up into the clouds, then it comes down again, evaporates back up into the clouds, comes down again, and it's just a cycle that goes on and on. And if you look at it from the perspective like this, life would seem to be pretty pointless. The never-ending cycle across mankind, the sun, the wind and the water, Verse 9, we look at the sun rising and we say, well, there's the sun rising. Well, it did that yesterday and the day before. In fact, it, it does it every day. The same old sun doing the same old thing. Or we feel the wind 
And we say, oh, there's that breeze again. I remember that breeze from last week and the week before and every other week. But we see the rain. We look out as the rain comes down and we say, ah, the rain. You're that same rain from last week and last month. You've just evaporated and you've come back down again. That's the feeling that Solomon is giving in these verses. Nothing is new in verse 10. It's the same old thing day in and day out if God isn't in our life. And then Solomon gives us his statement of intent in this chapter. He wants to find out what is the meaning of life. If it's just this, if this is the attitude without God, what is the meaning of life? Verse 13, he says, And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail that God hath given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. God has given us this sore travail. Solomon has seen all the works done under the sun and they're all vanity. And so Solomon gives himself this project, the project of seeing this meaning of life and we see the results in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Solomon starts off looking at self-indulgence. Well, if we don't have, if there was no God, then surely the meaning of life is self-indulgence. Enjoy pleasure in verse 1. Have laughter in verse 2. Drink wine in verse 3. Do great works in verse 4. Build and grow gardens and orchards in verse 5. Build pools of water in verse 6. Gain lots of servants and maidens in verse 7. Build lots of wealth in verse 8. Whatever he desired, Solomon had in verse 10. What is the outcome? Vanity and vexation in verse 11. And so Solomon then turns, well, if that's not it, What about living wisely? Solomon turns to living wisely in verse 12, but he concludes that wisdom exceeds folly in verse 13. And the outcome? Well, in verse 17, it's all vanity and vexation. Well, if self-indulgence and living wisely won't do it, what about toil? There's no better thing, surely, he says, than to eat and drink and to enjoy our labours in verse 24. Surely that is the meaning of life. The outcome, well, it's in verse 26. Vanity and vexation of spirit. And so this great test, this great project by Solomon to show that everything done under the sun without God is complete vanity and vexation. It's meaningless. It's pointless. And then we come to the conclusion of the whole matter in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. What is the conclusion from Solomon after this great project that he embarks upon? 
Well, the conclusion in verse 12 is to remember now thy creator. Verse 1, in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember God, he says, because in verse 7 we will eventually return to dust. So in the meantime, he says in verse 13, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. If life without God is meaningless, then in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And we know from 1 John 3 and verse 23 that what is it to keep the commandments of God? Well, it's to believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And so Solomon is concluding that everything under the sun is vanity, but a life with God brings meaning. Because as he concludes in verse 14, for God shall bring every work into judgment. And so there will be that time in the future when we will stand before our Lord Jesus Christ to be judged for the life that we have lived. And so Solomon says, so don't focus on those things which are temporary. Don't focus on the vanities of life, but instead obey God's commandments and give him reverence because there will be a time when we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to be judged. And when you combine those thoughts with 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, you get the complete different perspective than what we started out with in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon said, everything under the sun, everything without God is meaningless. Even the labor and the toil we do, it's completely meaningless. But in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, we're told to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And it's not in vain because we know that God will fulfill his plan and purpose with this earth. And that's the contrast, isn't it? Life without God is vanity and pointless. Life with God has meaning and purpose. God's plan and purpose bring meaning to our life. And we're told in Luke 12 and verse 32 that it is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So God wants us to be amongst those inhabitants on earth who perfectly reflect his glory. So let's conclude our night with a summary of what the Bible teaches concerning the meaning of life. The Bible teaches that God created the earth to be inhabited by people who would perfectly manifest his physical and his moral glory. And we have an opportunity to receive this gift when Christ returns and establishes God's kingdom. 
And so how do we respond to that? Well, looking at those verses that we have considered tonight, here's a number of dot points that came out of those verses. If that's the meaning of life, then we need to be sons and daughters of God, as we saw in 1 John 3. We need to believe in Jesus Christ, as we saw in John 3 and verse 16. Obey God's commandments from Ecclesiastes 12. And fear and reverence God from Ecclesiastes 12 as well. Develop God's character and be baptised from Mark 16, verse 16. Have faith, Hebrews 11. And love one another from 1 John 3, verse 23. We can do these things today and we can take comfort in the words of the last book of the Bible from Revelation 22 and verse 12, where we're told, Behold, I come quickly, says the Lord Jesus Christ, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work shall be. So that's the meaning of life as taught in the Bible. Thank you.